0: The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. If you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to the book of Colossians. We're going to be wrapping up our study here tonight in the book of Colossians, chapter 4. The title of my message for you tonight is A Few Good Friends. A few good friends. We could all use a few more good friends. You know, you look at any great man or woman, and what you'll find standing behind them is a team of people holding them up and allowing them to do what they do. That was certainly the case with the Apostle Paul. He was no one-man band. He had a tremendous team around him, and tonight we're going to get to look at a snapshot of some of those team members. You've heard the saying, it takes teamwork to make the dream work, and that is absolutely true. I mean, even the great Michael Jordan, as great as he was, relied on his team, and and he wouldn't have won all of those championships without the help of guys like Scottie Pippen who came alongside him and some of those great Bulls teams of the nineteen nineties. Basketball is a team sport and so is ministry. It's a team effort. And Paul knew that. He might have been the front man. But his ability to do what he did was made possible by the many people who surrounded him and supported him and held his arms up. And, and that's why Paul closed out so many of his letters the way he did by sending greetings and salutations and exhortations and encouragements and by giving shout outs to various people. When you read the letters of Paul, all told, he mentions over a 100 different people by name who helped him in various ways throughout the course of his ministry. I mean, just in Romans 16, he mentions 16 people alone. And then in Colossians chapter 4, which we're going to be looking at tonight, he mentions another 10 individuals. These people that Paul talks about, they're in some ways like the unsung heroes of the New Testament. They're not household names. They don't have books of the Bible named after them. And yet, they're famous in heaven. And each one of them played a vital role in helping Paul fulfill his God-given ministry. And today, as we consider kind of this group photo, if you will, this snapshot of Paul's friends, we're going to get a sense of the kinds of friends that we ought to be looking for that we can add to our community as well. So let's go ahead and begin reading there in Colossians 4, beginning in verse 7. It says, Tychikis, I think that's how you pronounce that, Well, he was just a little tyke, he'll tell you all the news about me. So Paul says, Tychicus will tell you all about me. He's a dear brother, a faithful minister, and a fellow servant in the Lord. I'm sending him to you for the express purpose that you might know about our circumstances and that he might encourage your hearts. He's coming with Onesimus, our faithful and dear brother, who is one of you. And they will tell you everything that's happening here. So here, Paul tells us about two men that he was sending to them with the intent and purpose that they might bring an update about Paul and what was going on in Rome, as well as deliver the letter. And and what we get in these two men is a snapshot of faithful friends. These guys were faithful friends. What does it look like? What does it mean to be a faithful friend? Well, a synonym for the word faithful might be dependable. You know what that means. When you're dependable, you can be counted on, you can be trusted in. Someone once said that the best ability is dependability. Someone who's faithful or dependable, their yes is their yes, and their no is their no, and their word is their bond. That was Tychicus and Onesimus. No matter what Paul needed done, it didn't have to be a big job or a small job, it didn't matter, he knew he could depend on these guys to do it. Man, wouldn't you love to have a friend like that? Now, for them, one of the ways their faithfulness displayed itself was through their willingness to deliver this letter that you and I are the beneficiaries of. All these thousands of years later, we're reading the letter that Onesimus and Tychicus delivered to the church at Colossae. And that might seem like a small thing, that they just were the mailmen for Paul. But it was, a, it was a huge responsibility. Their journey from Rome to Colossae would have been over 1,000 miles. It would have been made on foot. They would have had to cross Italy, and then they would have had to cross the Adriatic Sea. Then they would have had to cross Greece on foot, and then they would have come to the Aegean Sea. And after all of that, they still had another 100-mile walk ahead of them before they reached Colossae. And to think, you know, my mailbox is up the street, and I complain about that to my wife just about every day. But they were faithful. The world we live in, it highlights successful people, brilliant people, beautiful people, talented people. Those are the people who grace the covers of magazine and get selected as Time Magazine's Person of the Year. They grab all the headlines. But God, he does things differently. He doesn't seem to care too much about those things. Instead, when you look at scripture, he seems to put the highlight on those people who are faithful in their ministry and in their calling. You remember the parable of the talents. And it was those who were faithful with what they had been given and stewarded that well that those were the ones who were rewarded. And at the end, Jesus said to them, well done, now, good and faithful servant. Those are the words all of us ought to be living to hear, that at the end of our lives, as we cross the finish line, we would hear the Lord say, well done, good and faithful servant. You can't do better than that. I'll say one more thing on this topic. The great thing about faithfulness is when you're faithful in the small things, it opens the door for God to use you in great ways. You've heard that, right? It is faithfulness in the small tasks that opens the door for God to use you in great ways. And I can tell you that when we're looking to hire someone here on staff or over at the school, this is one of those characteristics, one of those qualities that we look for. Are they faithful? Are they, are they already involved? Are they serving? Or are they just after a title? You see, we, pr- we see this, this, this principle play out in the life of Tychicus specifically. He was faithful to deliver this late letter to the Colossian church. But then years later, Paul had to summon Timothy. Timothy was the pastor of the church in Ephesus, a very prominent church in the first century. You, you're familiar with the book of Ephesians. Well, Timothy pastored the church there. Paul needed him so he summoned him and he says don't worry I'll leave your church in good hands I'm sending Tychicus to serve them as interim pastor. So I love that from mailman to delivering God's mail and serving as the pastor of the church in Ephesus. That was Tychicus. The other guy he mentions there is Onesimus. Now we we learn more about his story in another New Testament book, the book of Philemon. And there we learn that Onesimus was actually a runaway slave. He belonged to this guy named Philemon, who was a a member of the church in Colossae. But he ran away, and on his way out from from, uh, Philemon's house, he stole some money. And in his travels, in his life on the run, Onesimus makes his way all the way to Rome, probably figuring it's a big city. There are lots of people there. I can blend in, and no one will spot me, and I can just kind of disappear and blend into the crowd. But then one day, as fate would have it, Onesimus, the fugitive, meets Paul, the apostle. And Paul begins to share with him, and Onesimus gets saved. Of course he did. Paul shared with everyone, and everyone he he met seemed to get saved. And after hearing his story, Paul begins to disciple him, and then he says, you know, you gotta go back, and you gotta make things right. And so he sends Onesimus back to Colossae, to address Philemon and he sends him with these two letters. The first was the letter to the Colossians and the other one was a personal letter that Paul puts in the hands of Onesimus to give to Philemon. And I just, I imagine the look on Philemon's face as he sees Onesimus who had run away from his house walking through the doors of the church. And then he hands him the letter, and together they sit down, and they begin to read this correspondence from the apostle Paul. And one of the things that Paul said in that letter to Philemon is this. This is Philemon 1, 17 through 19. He said, receive him, that is, receive Onesimus, as you would receive me. If he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me, Paul says. I, Paul, I write this with my own hand. I'll repay it. And then he adds this. I love Paul. He says, not to mention that you owe me your very self. (laughs) Isn't that great? He says, hey, if he owes you anything, whatever he stole, I'm going to make it right. I'm going to pay for that. And by the way, I'm not even going to bring up the fact that you wouldn't even be a Christian if I hadn't shared the gospel with you. I'm I'm above that. (laughs) It's just one of those things. I I love the Bible. He encourages Philemon to welcome Onesimus as he would himself. You can imagine the kind of greeting that Philemon would give to Paul. Then he says, take all of his debts and put it to my account. That's that's the heart of the father. And this story is the heart of the gospel. We were all Onesimus. We were all runaway slaves. We took off from the father's house, but Jesus Paid the price for us. And whatever we owed because of our debt of sin, he said, put it to my account. And then he welcomed us into his family, no longer as slaves, but he says, now I want you to receive them, my kids, as sons and daughters. That's the gospel. Amen? It takes slaves and it turns them into sons. It takes fugitives and it turns them into friends. It takes sinners and it turns them into saints. And that's the story of Onesimus. And by the way, just one more little fun fact about him. One of the early church fathers, a guy by the name of Ignatius, so this is like the first through third century of the early church, he wrote a letter to the Colossian church years after this letter was written. And at one point in that letter, he addresses the pastor of the Colossian church, and he addresses a man by the name of Onesimus. Kind of cool to think that he went from being a runaway slave to the pastor of the church where Philemon sat beautiful. It's a reminder of the fact that in the family of God, he tears down all of those labels that we tend to identify ourselves by. There's no Scythian bond or slave, male, female. We're all one in Christ. Amen. So they're faithful friends, Onesimus and Tychicus. Now moving on in verse 10, Paul goes on to say this. I also send my fellow prisoner, Aristarchus. He sends his greetings as does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. You've received instructions about him. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is also called justice, also sends greetings. These are the only Jews among my co-workers for the kingdom of God, and they have proved a comfort to me. So these guys are loyal friends. I'm putting them under that heading or category of loyal friends. He mentions three guys here, Aristarchus, Mark, and Jesus, also called justice. If your name was Jesus and you were a believer back then, you probably go by a nickname as well. Paul refers to these men as the only Jews among his co-workers who served with him. Paul had such a heart for his Jewish brothers and sisters, and he was always trying to share with them. But God gave Paul a different ministry. He primarily focused his ministry on the Gentiles. But these three Jewish brothers, they accompanied Paul and served alongside of him. And so he describes Aristarchus as my fellow prisoner. My fellow prisoner. Evidently, Aristarchus chose to stay with Paul throughout his imprisonment there in Rome as he awaited his trial before Caesar Nero. Everyone else bailed, but Aristarchus stayed. He is the very definition of a loyal friend you have a friend like that are you a friend like that man there's nothing more precious than a loyal friend and if you have found one of them cherish them like gold because that's exactly what they are you know as well as I do that it's it's easy to find people who will be friends with you during the good times but it takes a true friend a loyal friend to stick by your side even in the darkest moments you know, years ago, there was a newspaper that ran a contest, and they asked their readers to submit definitions for the word friend, and the submission that won was the one that said, a friend is someone who walks in when the whole world has gone out. That was Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner. The Bible says it like this in the Proverbs, and I'd love it if we could read this verse together out loud. This is Proverbs 17:17. Ready? Go. A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for times of adversity. Aristarchus was there for Paul through thick and thin, and we could all use someone like that in our lives. He also mentions John Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. And there's a rather interesting story attached to this guy. He was one of Paul's early missionary companions and went with him on his first missionary journey. But at some point, Mark was thought to be younger. And at some point, things got hard and times got tough and Mark bailed. That didn't sit too well with Paul. So when the time came to go on their second missionary journey, Barnabas, who was another companion of Paul, said, oh, great. I'll go grab Mark so he can come with us. And Paul was like, "Uh uh-uh. No, not this time. You know, he, I, I've seen how that one plays out. Well, him and Barnabas got into it over this and things got so heated that they eventually split up and went their different ways. We studied this in our, our studies through the book of Acts and Barnabas took John Mark with him and Paul took Silas and they each went their separate ways. Yet here it's, it's telling that a number of years have passed, about a dozen years at this point. And, and Paul and Mark had patched things up. And he says, hey, you've received instructions about Mark. I want you to receive him. Evidently, and they had mended fences. And here's what I love about that. It tells us, Mark's story, that is, tells us that we serve and worship a God of second chances. Amen. And some of us need a lot more than two. And I'm at the top of that list. I mean, how many of you are working on, you know, six, maybe seven digits in the chance column, (laughs) but Mark got a second chance and maybe you blew it at some point. Maybe you're here this evening and you're like, there's no way God could ever use someone like me. Not after the things I've done, not after the life I've lived. If you knew the skeletons in my closet, you'd kick me right out of these pews and out of the church. And I'm here to tell you, no, that's not the God we serve. We serve a God of 2nd, and 3rd, and 4th, and 10th, and 12th, and 316,000th chances. He never gives up on us. And if you're not dead, that means God's not done with you. John Mark uh, preaches that message to all of us. The last guy he mentions in verse 11 is Jesus, who's called Justice. And all we get from him is a greeting. But he made it into the book. He was a faithful friend. And he might be anonymous here on earth. But Paul thought highly of him, uh, enough of him to include him in this letter, in his name. He's like, I got a shout out. I'm in the book. I made it. Pretty cool for Jesus' justice. Paul goes on in verse 12 to talk about another friend of his, a guy named Epaphras. And he gives to us a picture of a fervent friend. Verse 12 says Epaphras, who is one of you and a servant of Christ Jesus, sends greetings. He's always wrestling in prayer for you, that you might stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. I vouch for him that he's working hard for you and for those at Laodicea and Hierapolis. All right, Epaphras, he's the next guy on the list, and his name means loving. Some people live up to their names, others don't. Epaphras certainly did. He was a loving guy. And He shows up earlier in this letter to the Colossians in chapter 1, where we learn that he was actually the guy who planted this church. He started it. So he was a church planter. I have a special place in my heart for all church planters. But in addition to being a church planter, he was more than that. And Paul fills in the picture a little bit more for us here as he calls him a prayer warrior and a hard worker. Man, these are two great qualities in anybody. A prayer warrior and a hard worker. He didn't just say his prayers. He really labored in prayer for the Colossians. You know there's a difference, right? Sometimes we just kind of go through the motions of our prayers and we can say it without even entering in or thinking about the words that we're saying. Not Epaphras. He wrestled for the Colossians in prayer. (laughs) Evidently, as Paul is watching Epaphras, pray for the Colossians, he's like, the only word I can come up with is he's wrestling for you guys. (laughs) Is that the word that you would use to describe your intercessory prayers? You're just, you're in labor and you're travailing and you're, you're at the, the point of sweating because you're so intense. I mean, the word that he uses there for wrestle is the same word in English that we get our word agony or agonize from. It was used in the context of athletics, and it would describe that the effort an athlete might exert as he competed in the Olympic Games. That's the kind of praying Epaphras did for the Colossian believers. It's the same actual word that gets used to describe Jesus' prayer there in the Garden of Gethsemane. On the night before his crucifixion, when Jesus was there laboring and travailing in prayer and saying, Father, if it's possible, take this cup away. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. And he sweat, as it were, great drops of blood. Jesus was in agony in his prayers. And Epaphras was in agony for the people of Colossae, to see them built up, to see them edified, and to see them encouraged. Would to God that we would develop Passionate, fervent prayer lives like Epaphras, where we don't just go through the motions, where we don't just say our prayers, but we engage on that level and we engage our hearts. I mean, you you ever seen some of these Jewish Orthodox believers pray at the Western Wailing Wall? They pray like this. You ever seen that? And the reason they do that is because the scriptures tell us to pray with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, and with all of our strength. And so they're literally trying to live that out as they throw themselves physically into their prayers. Beautiful example. Would to God that we would cultivate that kind of prayer life. The other thing Paul tells us about Epaphras is that he was a hard worker. He worked hard and toiled for the church in Colossae, as well as the other churches in that area. And let me just say, Epaphras was a great minister, a great model for ministry. As, as minister, as your pastor, I'm, I, I'm here to report to you that we have a team of men and women who serve you in this church, and they work hard. And men like Epaphras serve as a model for us. I mean, I know some of you are out there, and you're thinking, really, work hard? I mean, you show up once a week, you preach for an hour. Like, I've had people tell me, like, And they're well-meaning, and they they don't say it mainly, but they'll be like, well, what do you do like the rest of the week? (laughs) And then I had somebody tell me, because they sat through multiple services, and I I preached the same message, and they're like, I realized you actually work on these messages that you give. So that's that's, that's like backhanded. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) But it's not just pastors who are called to work hard, right? We want to work hard for you guys, and we do. But it's all of us who are called and should strive to be hard workers. And just a word on that, trusting God should never be an excuse for laziness in the life of a believer. A lazy Christian is a poor witness. It's kind of an oxymoron moron, if you think about it. I read an article in salary.com that said, companies waste annually $759 billion per year on work that isn't being performed by their employees. So people you know, wasting time on line or you know, just kind of daydreaming or showing up late and leaving early, all of that. And, and I wonder, have you ever thought of that as stealing from the company you work for? Have you ever brought it into the realm of things that matter to God? It's part of your testimony. It's part of your witness. And the person who's filled with the spirit of God will be energized to do more and to work harder not less. Why? Because they realize that they're serving God and not just their earthly boss. St. Augustine was a a saint from a century ago, or a long time ago, rather. And he said that we should pray like everything depends on God, but work like everything depends on us. He said that a bit tongue-in-cheek because ultimately our work and our prayers come from God. Paul the Apostle said it like this, Philippians 2.12. And again, let's read this together out loud. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Work out what God has worked in. Does that make sense? We work out according to the strength and the power that God has worked into us to fulfill his good pleasure in our lives. One more point, on, one more illustration to, about this point before we move on. Anytime I need to be reminded of what a good work ethic looks like, I just think of John Wesley. He was a, a Methodist preacher from about 100 years ago, and he was a hard worker. Just listen to this. Over the course of his more than 40-year ministry, he traveled over 250,000 miles on horseback. Why? Well, so that he could preach in different places. During that time, he preached over 40,000 sermons, wrote over 400 books, and learned over 10 languages. At 83, he retired from the ministry so that he could begin to write, but he was annoyed that he couldn't write at that age more than 15 hours a day without hurting his eyes. (laughs) At 86, he was starting to slow down, and he was ashamed because he couldn't preach more than twice a day. And then he really got lazy as he got older because he had an increasing tendency to lie in bed until 5.30 a.m. in the morning. What a slouch. (laughs) Now, I'm not recommending here that we try to keep his pace. All I'm suggesting is that we strive to be hard workers like Epaphras. He worked hard hard for the church, and we ought to as well. In verses 14 and 15, Paul goes on to point out two more friends. He says, our dear friend Luke, the doctor, sends his greetings along with Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers and sisters at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. So I love just this eclectic gathering of people that Paul partnered with. You have working professionals. Luke was a doctor. You have Nympha, she's this woman, you have slaves and their masters, you have all kinds of people that were part of Paul's inner circle. Luke was a a doctor, he was a, a professional, not a paid minister. And he went on Paul's missionary journeys with him. In addition to that, he was also a devoted friend and a great historian. Luke was the guy who went around and interviewed people like Mary, Jesus' mother, and wrote down the stories, and then he wrote the gospel according to Luke. He also wrote the book of Acts, and he was a devout and devoted friend. And then Paul also mentions this guy, Demas. Now, there's a story that goes along with him. here he just says that Demas sends greetings. Now, he shows up a couple of other places in Scripture as well. His name, Demas, his name means popular, and that'll play into what happened to him in just a moment. His story serves as a warning to all of us. You see, in the book of Philemon, which was written just before Colossians, as I mentioned, Paul calls him a fellow worker, Demas the fellow worker. But here he says nothing about him. He just says it, Demas says, I. But then... A couple more years pass, and in 2 Timothy, Paul mentions Demas again, and this is what he says. Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica, 2 Timothy 4.10. So there is this downward slide, this trajectory towards apostasy in the life of this man named Demas. He started off great. Great. Serving there with Paul. You can't think of a better ministry partner, a friend, a mentor than the apostle Paul. Yet eventually he deserted and he went apostate. Paul tells us that Demas abandoned him. Why? Because he loved this present world. 1 John 2.15 warns us about this. Let's read this together out loud. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world... The love of the Father is not in him. Don't love the world. He loved this world. Now, by the way, when Paul says that Demas loved the world, the word that he uses there for loved in the Greek, it's the Greek word agape. We're familiar with that word. It's the word that we use to describe our love for Jesus and his love for us. He agapes us. Yet Demas' his heart was captivated by the things of this world and the desire to enjoy the pleasures of this world ultimately caused him to turn his back, not just on his friend, but on his faith. Perhaps serving next to Paul just wore on him. I mean, he looked around at other people his age, and they were enjoying the pleasures of this life. And then he looked over at Paul, and he thought, well, how, what has it gotten him? And he thought, you know, he's just Awaiting execution here in a Roman prison cell and he's there in Rome and he's like man I want to taste the fairs vanity fair if you will I want to see what this world has to offer and I can tell you this world is Enticing and and many of you have followed the way of Demas and you've kind of gone out and sampled What this world has to offer? And it always leaves you feeling empty inside doesn't it? I mean, my wife gave me this quote the other day. She said, yeah, I heard this about worldliness and and trying to find meaning and fulfillment and happiness in the things of this world. She says, every time you chase sin, it takes you further than you wanted to go. It costs you more than you planned on paying, and it keeps you longer than you intended on staying. It ends up just binding you and grinding you down. You say, but what's the alternative? The alternative is so much. As we fix our eyes on Jesus, in light of his glorious grace, the things of this world grow strangely dim as we fix our eyes on him. And our challenge as Christians is to become captivated by Jesus so that we can then live in the world without becoming part of the world, without being contaminated by it. Because this world is driven by a set of values, it has an agenda, it has motives, it has things that it tells you you should be pursuing and chasing and and a way that you should be living. And it's constantly trying to squeeze you into its mold. And so the Bible says, no, 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 God, He lives according to an alternate or upside down way of thinking and if you follow him, the way up is down and the way down is up and in God's economy, if you wanna be great, you become the servant. If you wanna find your life, you lay it down and if you wanna be great, then, well, I already said that, but so many things, if you wanna do all these things, you gotta follow Jesus. Think of a boat. A boat is a very useful thing. When you put a boat in the water, you can have a lot of fun in a boat and you can fish out of a boat and do all kinds of great things in a boat, water ski behind it. A boat in the water is a good thing, but water that gets into the boat, that's not a good thing, is it? I have a friend who he bought a boat on a whim off of another friend. He told me this story and he was taking his boat out for the first time. And, and he had no idea. He was a new to boating. And so he backed it up off of the, uh, the, the, the trailer and into the water. And within a minute or two, the boat started to list. And it's getting higher and higher. And he's looking up at the sky. He didn't realize that the boat he had bought had a plug. And he's thinking, what? Boats have plugs? Like, what, what, what are we doing with a plug? And so he's calling his wife. How you get back here and back the thing down. And he's trying to you know, rev the engine to get it back onto the trailer as the boat is just sinking with all the, the water. And eventually, he did get it on. And they salvaged the boat and were able to take it back out later. And that's a whole other story. But I wonder if you're in your boat, you have a plug that hasn't been screwed shut. And there are things from this world that are seeping in. And they're weighing you down. And they're threatening your journey. I don't want you to be like Demas, who was a derelict friend. I want you to be a devoted friend, a faithful friend, a loyal friend. I want you to finish strong. Let's look at verse 17, and we'll finish with this. Tell Archippus, Paul says, see to it that you complete the ministry that you've received from the Lord, standing in stark contrast To Demas, we have this guy named Archippus. The only other time he shows up in scripture is in the book of Philemon. And there Paul refers to him as a fellow soldier. And so Paul addresses him in that same vein here as he tells him to complete the ministry that he received from the Lord. You think about that picture of a soldier and what a soldier is called to do. Every soldier's main responsibility is to complete the mission that they received from their commanding officer. And so Paul writes specifically to Archippus. And he tells him, You received a mission, you received it directly from the Lord. We're not told the scope of his ministry or what it entailed. All we're told is that he had a ministry that he'd received from the Lord, and, and, and Paul, as more of a senior officer in the Lord's army, is, is calling him to attention, and he's exhorting him to complete that mission. And by the way, the, the way this sentence is structured in the Greek, he, it suggests that he was to keep on fulfilling his calling. It was a lifetime job. For whatever reason, Paul felt compelled in his spirit to encourage Archippus to keep going. Who knows? Maybe he was discouraged about the journey, about what he was seeing in terms of results. And I don't know. The people don't seem like they're following along. And I'm not getting a lot of traction or a lot of buy-in. Or maybe he had hesitancy about following through on the task God had given to him. Maybe he didn't feel worthy. Maybe he had fear, insecurity in his own heart. Who am I to minister? In this capacity to these people in this way. Or maybe he was afraid about what it would cost him. Certainly at this time, to preach the gospel came with a price tag. You might get thrown in prison like Paul, or you might even lose your life. And so there was a high cost to entering the ministry, and so Paul calls him to attention, and he says, you're being pulled in a million different directions, but my exhortation to you is this. I want you to see to it that you complete, that you fulfill, that you've finished, that you cross the finish line with regards to your ministry. And let me just give you that same exhortation as we wrap things up this evening. You too have received a ministry from the Lord, but we too become discouraged. And I don't know, I just, I had this sense during worship, I feel like it was from the Lord, that there are some people in here who have heavy hearts and you're just You're barely keeping it together. You're here, but you're hanging on by a thread. You know, just like one of those cat posters. Hang in there. You know, (laughs) that's what you feel like. And so my encouragement to you this evening, those of you who want to throw in the towel, is to see it through. Complete your ministry. Now at this point, some of you are thinking that's great for a guy like Archippus, but I'm not in the ministry. Well, hold on, not so fast. The Bible is clear that God has called and commissioned each and every one of us. He's given to you, a specific ministry. And he's gifted you and equipped you to fulfill your ministry. You right now at this moment already possess everything you need to complete every task of God's calling on your life. You see, we think of this as the ministry and what I'm doing as the ministry. What we do up on stage with music like we think of this as the ministry or perhaps you think of a parachurch organization like Samaritan's Purse or far reaching ministries or one of these things as the ministry uh-uh Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 12 that what happens here is we're to equip the saints for the work of the ministry the ministry happens out there I heard of this one church that above the the doors on the inside of the church, so as you left the church, what you would read as you walked out the doors was was this, you are about to enter the mission field because everything outside of those doors is your mission field. Now, before you can fulfill your ministry, some of you still need to find your ministry. You can't fulfill what you haven't found. (laughs) And so if you're looking what is my next steps here at Maranatha? God has plugged you into this church. Let me just encourage you to join our growth track. That is the on-ramp into the life, and, the, and, and the, it'll get you on the fast track into the life of this church. There you'll be equipped, you'll learn your gifts, and you'll, you'll get, be given opportunities to step up and to start serving. But whatever it is, wherever God leads you, however, and whatever shape that takes, let me just encourage you, you've got to see to it. It's not going to happen on its own. Another mistake we often make with regards to the ministry is we start to compare ministries. Well, I want that ministry. Or, well, why did they get this ministry? And she has that ministry, and I'm, I just have this role. And we start to compare and weigh and, and do all of these things. Even Peter wasn't above that. He looked over at John and said, well, what about him? And Jesus said, you don't worry about him. You follow me. (laughs) And so too, Paul would say, Archippus, see, see to it that you complete your ministry. You have a unique ministry. It's going to look specific to you, carry it out, live in such a way that at the end of your life you can cross the finish line, and you'll hear Jesus say, well done, good and faithful servant. Now, we've spent a good amount of time tonight looking at this snapshot, of you, if you will, of Paul's friends. And as you look at that list, these are the characteristics, the qualities that you ought to look for in a friend. You say, I don't have any friends that would find their way onto that list. Maybe Demas, but outside of him, I don't know. Well, you know, the Bible says uh, someone who would have friends must show themselves friendly. And so these are also characteristics that we can look to build into our own hearts. And finally, I'll, I'll leave you with this. The Bible talks about a friend who sticks closer than a brother. His name is Jesus. And he embodies every one of these characteristics perfectly. And he's here. So if you're lonely tonight, Jesus wants to befriend you. He wants to walk through life with you. He wants to help you fulfill the calling of God on your life. Let's go ahead and bow our heads in a word of prayer. Thank you, Lord, for this time that we've had to to look at these, these little vignettes, snapshots. It's different people, Lord, that you sprinkled like salt into the life of the Apostle Paul. And I just I want to say thank you, Lord, for the incredible team that we have been blessed with here at Maranatha Chapel, incredible servants. From the top to the bottom, every person here is someone that is so treasured and so valuable, and we thank you for them, Lord. And beyond that, as I look at this crowd and I think of the potential in this room, Lord, for change for kingdom advancement, there is ministry in this room. I pray that you would uncork it. I pray that you would release it. Lord, I pray that this church would be a church that is ascending house, that we, we gather, that we're encouraged, that we're built up and equipped, and, that, and then we scatter, Lord into the community, into the city of San Diego as salt and as light, so that those who are far might be brought near. Jesus, you want to use us. And really, that's where fulfillment is found. It's found in walking in relationship with you. It's when life becomes an adventure. And so, Lord, I pray these precious saints, these men and women that you have called by your name and commissioned into the ministry, I pray that they would feel empowered to step out, some of them for the first time, and that they would begin to use their gifts and their anointing to bless, to encourage, to share, to lead, to steward, So that when we cross our finish line and we hand the torch, as it were, to the next generation, we can say with Paul, I've finished my race. And I know there's a crown waiting for me on the other side. And we'll pass into eternity and we'll see a big smile on your face. And the light in your eyes as you say, well done, good and faithful servant enter into the reward that has been prepared for you by my Father and the angels in heaven. May we live for that, and only that, not being drawn away or enticed or captivated by the things of this world, Lord. Protect us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our weekend services held Saturday evening or Sunday morning. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.